Um, okay. So because obviously wind turbines, unlike let's say for example internal combustion engines or, or something, the technology is is both old and not old at the same time, right? So you know windmills have existed for hundreds and hundreds of years, but modern wind turbines in their sort of current configuration are a relatively recent phenomenon. And uh, presumably the, the tech, you know, lubricant technology tends to follow the, uh, the sort of the manufacturer technology. So um, maybe you could speak a little bit about like sort of the early days of wind turbine gear oils and, you know, different sure. approaches that maybe some of the different companies took. Sure. Um, if I roll back the way machine, way back machine, go back to, uh, um, generating electricity with a windmill, you know, which is mm. the difference between a wind turbine and a mill. You know, if you're, if you're milling electrons, you're on your way to a disastrous experience. Right? Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, if you go back into the eighties, when, when the lar- the very first up tower power generation, you know, uh, began, you know, probably the late seventies into the early eighties, they're relatively small units, right? They're no more than, um, uh, a hundred, 200 kilowatts, which is, you know, 0.2, uh, of a megawatt, uh, open towers. Some of them had three blades, four blades, two blades. I've even seen photographs of things with five or six blades here in the U S. Um, and it, it was just sort of this, desire to generate electricity you know uh the europeans were were much better at it than than the u.s folks but even then building larger and larger machines didn't come along um until sort of the the late 80s early 90s yeah right and um back in the early days people would just grab whatever industrial gearbox was available doing whatever kind of work, you know, if you say had a, uh, a steel mill and you had a, uh, um, a 0.2 megawatt gearbox that was a feeder for uh, smelting machines. Well, it, instead of pushing electricity into that, you know, gearbox from an electric motor, why don't we just put a, put it up tower and spin it backwards and drive a generator on the backside. So that was the, the quick and dirty engineering logic there. Um, so at the time, <clears throat> in, industrial gearing was, was just what you had said a little bit earlier, that the lubrication of the industrial gearing was just cut back industri- uh, automotive style lubricants. And even today, when you look at automatic transmissions and uh, manual gearbox transmission oils that are used in, in today's application, there's still a hangover, really hasn't been questioned the way industrial lubricant evolution has has really sort of taken everything down to the basic molecule. The automotive people are, you know, as an industrial lube guy for over 20 years, uh, and somebody who comes from, you know, a family of motorheads, I can tell you that, you know, the, the most powerful automotive conveyance you have today is really quite small and wimpy compared to large industrial gearing, you know, you, you're dealing with, <laughs> You're dealing with several orders of magnitude of power going through an industrial gearbox um, relative to, say, a wide open throttle uh, nitro burning funny car um, uh, <laughs> or even large industrial trucks that 
cruise the highways, you know. Um, so that those those particular uh, gearboxes, those were just industrial gearboxes. They put them up tower and they would run for six, eight, 10, 12 months, and they would all fail. Broken teeth, uh, bearings that would wipe out. Um, you know, you'd have uh, shafts that would snap. And, you know, it didn't really take more than uh, seven to 10 years into the, into the early 90s or, or so, or through, through the 80s into the early 90s, where people realized, oh, wait a minute, if we really want some reliable power generation, we have to increase the quality, uh, not to the degree of, say, aircraft machining quality and whatnot, but we have to get a little bit better at um, devising machines that, that are tighter, have uh, tighter tolerances that are capable of more uh, sustained power throughput from, from wind events to generate uh, electricity. And that's really sort of the, the, the beginning of mechanical reliability sort of played into the uh, evolution of lubricants that went into those machines in the, through the 90s. And that was really where the genesis of SHCXMP, Mobile, mobile Gear SHCXMP, uh, came in because there were a lot of attempts to use uh, metal-free type formulations and then um, uh, metal-type uh, heavily laden formulations that had lots of zinc, lots of calcium in them. And there really wasn't a, a consensus. You know, there were two sort of philosophies, metal-free and, and heavy metals, heavy, heavy concentrations of metals. There really wasn't a consensus as to what, uh, how everything would, would shake out. But it was apparent that once you got into machines that were beyond a quarter of a megawatt, getting up into the half a megawatt, approaching 1.0 megawatts, those machines got more and more sophisticated, more and more loaded. And that's where the micropitting failures started to accumulate. And that, that was sort of the genesis of SHC XMP. It, it evolved from SHC 600 back in the early 90s. And you remember, the thing that makes SHC 600, mobile SHC 600 different than just about every other lubricant is it's never advertised to be uh, a specialist of anything. It's a Swiss army knife lubricant, right? So it's, it does everything you want, uh, cures baldness, but it's a, it's a master of nothing. It never was designed to be a master of anything. So they put, they put SHC 600 in some of these wind turbines and they would last quite a bit longer than the normal lubricants that they were reaching for, but it, you'd still have these detonation failures. And that's where SHC XMP came from. It mitigated uh, micropitting failures, which are micropitting is this phenomenon of heavily loaded gearing that's transferring power where you're actually bending teeth with every cycle. And that's that surface deformation and denting that happens when uh, teeth uh, uh, move against each other, where you actually start to delaminate the upper surfaces of the uh, the gear teeth, uh, mostly down the root area, which is the worst place you can have a uh, an erosion type of mechanism. Uh, so that's where SHC SHC XMP extreme extra micropitting protection came from, and you just you just have these these two camps of consumption: the the metal free people, you know, that were going after the micropitting protection using heterocyclic strategies, you know, nitrogen containing 
materials, phosphorus, a little bit of phosphorus, a little bit of sulfur. And then the other guys over here, which were, you know, the molybdenums, the calciums, the zincs. And it, that sort of continued while the mechanical uh, evolution was, was going on simultaneously through the 1990s, the turn of the century into the noughts. And also parallel to all that was the, the, the sort of the standardization of the design of the machines. You know, NEG Micon merged with Vestas and now all of a sudden you have sort of the standardized Danish design where you have three blades that have individual pitch control and the white tower and the nacelle with the gearbox and the generator up tower. Um, and all those things grew at the same time. You know, you, you, the, the, the size of the machines would grow. The loads on the, the teeth and the bearings would, would increase. And to the point where the problem of micro pitting sort of got solved along the way of lubricants making those steps towards mitigating micro pitting in some of the standardized testing, but also in field trials, uh, but also the designers of these gearboxes uh, changed tremendously. The, the, the machining capabilities, I mean, you, you're dealing with say a, a one megawatt machine, gearbox um, bowl gear is probably you know, two meters in diameter, right? So, and, and there's almost no backlash in those machines on the, on the manufacturing floor and up tower. You, you, you are amazed to see just how tight these things are under a variety of conditions. I've, uh, I've gone up tower many, many times to look, go through inspections and field trials and even um, across the board, doesn't matter if it, they come from, uh, the gearboxes come from Europe or US or Asia, they're extremely tight. Everything is, is, is uh, designed to be sort of halfway of the tolerance of automotive technology, in be, you know, not quite as, as super precise and, and crazy as uh, aerospace, but certainly an order of magnitude better than automotive technology. Maybe just um, stop you there. Maybe I'm second. rambling too much. I hope I'm not rambling. No, 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 no. It was, it was really good. I, I just wanted to back up to a couple of things that you mentioned. So one of them being, um, let's say the, let, let's call it a philosophy difference between uh, metal containing and, and metal free. Um, to the non-formulator, what is, let's say, for example, the disadvantage of having metals in a formulation? Mm, that's a great question. Yeah. So, so what is a formulator? So, I, my background is 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 chemistry, organic chemistry. Um, but you know, as I explained to you before, I'm sort of a third generation motorhead here in the in the East Coast of the U.S. So, I grew up around machines and whatnot. Um, and uh, so, inside the industry, we're called formulators. But outside, in the Greater American Chemical Society, we're, we're called product designers, and the product we design is lubricants. Yep. So I've always, I've kind of always called myself a lubricant designer. So it's kind of a weird little, what do you do for a living, Daddy? Yeah, well, that's I true. design, I design lubes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's interesting you, you bring that up because the the metal free philosophy is something that mobile. Uh, adhere to and there's a few competitors there's a couple competitors to come to mind that try to imitate that um, but the 
the metal containing formulations, which are the traditional ZDDPs, the calcium, magnesium, uh, sulfonates, um, the molybdenum uh, disulfides or the molybdenum thiocarbamates. You know, um, the, the, the big switch for mobile, mobile was starting in that direction long before my time. And I'm, I'm on Medicare now, right? So my uh, predecessors and their, my, my intellectual grandparents back in the 60s and 70s uh, at mobile made the decision to move away from metals uh, because that's, that's essentially everyone used either a cutback automotive style formulation or they just added things on top of an automotive style formulation, which still uses a tremendous number of metals. But the reason why mobile went away from that is the two fundamental reasons. Number one is that uh, the chemist that came before me and myself we recognize that industrial drain oil cycles are significantly longer than automotive uh, cycling, right? So typical engine oil, you know, let's say mobile one, it goes 15,000 miles at say 30 miles an hour of runtime, uh, you know, average speed, your runtime is no more than say 2000 hours. And that oil shot, right? Uh, let's say you run that, oil for the, you know, you change it several times and your car goes uh, 150,000 miles. For most of most people, 150,000 miles is it's, it's game over, right? It's used up. But that's only about eight, 9,000 hours of operation, mm. which is only one year in an industrial setting, right? So the duty cycles that industrial lubes face are generally 24, seven, 365, right? So it's 8,700 hours in a year. So most industrial systems are, you turn them on after you do your maintenance and they run. And they usually run until there's an annual maintenance shutdown. Wind turbines are the same way. You know, it's a pain in the neck to get up and down the tower to change, those, change the oil, right? So you set it and forget it. So the long drain interval that industrial lubes have obfuscates, the, you know, at least in the mobile days, that it really eliminated metals being in these systems because the presence of all these metals makes them extremely hydroscopic. And one of the things that happens in a wind turbine, a lot of other applications, there's water everywhere. Water gets in the gearbox, water gets in the nacelle. Most, so in the, in the mobile philosophy, uh, SHC 600, SHC XMP, the SHC uh, gear WT, uh, no metals whatsoever. They're basically designed to be contaminated from the environment and drop out any contaminants. But if you've got metals, think about how an engine oil is formulated. It's designed to absorb garbage from its environment, right? So combustion products, you know, partially oxidized hydrocarbons, um, reduced hydrocarbons, uh, soot, you know, in, in diesel engine oils. Those, those additive systems are designed to capture and um, either chelate or dissolve until that lubricant gets pushed through a filter and then it's removed. Mm -hmm. Well, not so in an industrial application. In an industrial application, you actually say, okay, the lubricant, at least in the mobile world, the, the non-metal formulating, the lubricant is designed to run forever until something goes wrong with the machine. Right. 
And over here with the, with the metal containing formulation, not only do those additive systems and presence of these uh, micellular structures inside the lubricant uh, make the oil more hydroscopic. It absorbs more water from the environment and carries water to the machine. All the, inter all the um, intricate parts, the bearings, the gears, the shafts, all that water gets delivered by metal containing formulation. Over here with the metal free formulation, not so. First time the oil gets circulated through the sump, it drops out. Nothing yeah. but lube in the machine. Okay. So that the origin of those those philosophies sort of came that I would say that it's it was easy to do metal containing formulations because that's status quo and there's no reason to change it. But on the mobile side, we evolved this ethos of avoiding metals because our user community, as you're aware, most of them maintain their equipment by the manufacturer's recommendation, but there's a significant number of them that really just turn the machine on and just chooch it forever until all the money gets squeezed out of it, right? Yep. So, and you have to, you have to sort of serve those two different, um, that, that, those two different clients over here. And hmm. so with the, the, with the metal containing uh, additives, uh, and this is me coming at it as a, as a non-chemist, right? I don't have a chemistry background. The way that I always try and, uh, let's say, visualize how a lot of these additives work is that um, in, in some ways, everything, everything is electrical when you go down to the molecular level. So it seems like uh, a, a lot of the ways that, let's say, for example, the surfactants worked, which, you know, your dispersants and your detergents, even some of the kind of like the anti-wear style additives, they have to they have to have some mechanism to attract themselves to either like metal surfaces or to contaminants or to, you know, oxidation byproducts and whatever. And as it happens, most of those things are polar or have charge sitting at the surface. And so almost all of the dispersants and detergents and, um, you know, corrosion inhibitors or whatever are designed to, you know, with some kind of polarity to them to attract themselves to other polar molecules. Yeah, that's a very very straightforward and, and um, it it sounds simplistic, but it's actually how things work. Okay, cool. Well, that's good to know that we're on the right track. And then and then I guess the the way that I would see it is that then water, being very polar, uh, is then also. I mean, the 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 additive doesn't can't see right. It's not uh, it's not a person. It can't tell the difference between. Uh, you know, like a soot molecule versus a water molecule necessarily, like they're both just polar. And so is, is that why the, a lot of the metal additives, uh, you know, attracted to water or attract water? Yeah, that's fundamentally, yeah. Right? yeah. So you've got um, water is your biggest enemy, but contaminants and everything else, but you're, you're right. Water is by far and away. Because the thing about water is, it's never pH 7.00, right? It's never pure water, right? It, it, it has a history of, it carries with it a history of where those individual water molecules have been exposed in the environment. If you're near the seashore where there's a lot of alkalinity, it, you know, you've got pHs that are very high, 8.2, 8.3. You know, it could be inland 
uh, near a pine forest or, you know, in a paper mill. And it's very acidic. You could have pHs that are down below six. You know, so, so there's all this uh, polar gunk that water molecules pick up, for lack of a better term. You know, the, the history of alkalinity or the history of acidity, and that's carried into the lubricant uh, with it. Um, so, so when you're dealing with, with water in, in, a, in a bulk media, it, it tends to interact with, with the calcium sulfonates or the, the molybdenum uh, disulfide precursors or any of the other dispersants. I mean, th these are essentially, um, you could, dispersants in general, you could look at them as sort of uh, uh, the white blood cells of uh, certain types of lubricants, right? They're designed with uh, nitro a lot of nitrogen atoms, every third atom in a, in a long chain, that are designed to specifically chelate and attach onto acidic um, materials. And, and all the hydrocarbon tails essentially just sort of wrap up around the, the entire uh, uh, undesired garbage, if you will. Yeah. And, and so with water and, and any kind of aqueous contamination, you're essentially short-circuiting what those molecules are designed to do, right? They're designed to interact with metal surfaces in the machines, whether they be ferrous or, you know, some type of ferrous alloy or some kind of copper alloy. And water just sucks them up, you know, and it takes them out of the reaction sequence. Okay. And then, um, so the other thing that we hear a lot about is the idea of um, additives precipitating. Mm. Um, and I, I've seen a little bit of this in, let's say, for example, like boron-based additives, which seem to form, uh, what is it, boric, boric acid, uh, which is insoluble. Um, and so you get this like abrasive material, you know, in the gearbox mm. and things like that. Um, what is that precipitation mechanism? Oh, um, actually, if you, you look at, you think about, we talk about calcium sulfonates. It's actually uh, in a brand new oil, you have uh, a mixture of calcium oxide and calcium carbonate surrounded by a, a micelle. You know, you see in the news today about coronaviruses, how all the little spike proteins are sticking out. But if you look, if you, you, you take your, your, uh, your super race vision and start looking through the, the layers, like a cross section of a coronavirus, you, you're going to go through a sulfonate uh, micellular structure that's the actual cell wall. All the cell walls in your body actually have these sort of fatty uh, acid or fatty um, uh, polar head groups with, with some type of uh, hydrocarbon attached to them. And depending on the pH, it's either going to be an inside micelle, you know, a very very low pHs, or it's going to be an inverted micelle, where the hydrocarbons are going to be on the inside, and the the, the materials going to be on the um, the polar materials are going to be on the outside. So what happens with with a minor little pH shift, you can actually force those additives to come out of solution. In fact, if you if if you ever want to look, um, <clears throat> one of the telltale signs of uh, of um, insult, if you're near the ocean, for example, with alkaline air, you can actually pull the dipstick out of an automatic transmission 
right? And just wipe that dipstick on a, a clean piece of paper and you can see some milky additives in there. Well, that, that's the calcium oxide and the calcium um, carbonate and the magnesium oxide uh, coming out of the, the controlled micelles that were in the brand new additives and they're precipitating out. So it, it, it's really the aqueous contamination that comes into uh, say an automatic transmission or an industrial gearbox or whatever the manufacturing process is. And it, the, the, the brand new lubricants that have the, the metal containing additives are, are very carefully balanced to uh, allow these um, neutralizing materials to like the calcium oxide and the calcium carbonate to stay in solution. But any little aqueous upset frequently allows them to precipitate out of solution. Hmm. I don't know if that answered your question. Or no, not, yeah, that, that, that's, that's really good. That's really helpful. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense. And then um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about as well, and this goes back to what we were talking about previously with the micropitting failures, is, um, you know, we, we had micropitting failures early on. And then there's two factors which seem to have solved that issue mostly. And one is uh, gearbox design. And then the other one is, if you like, lubricant design. Yeah. Now we we as the lubricant community don't really have an influence over the design of the gearbox, but uh, how do you? We can we can we can chase that. Frequently, what happens is that we we chase the failure mode to fix it. Yeah. And, and in that in that chase, there's you know it's almost like the uh, the tortoise and the hare. You know, there's there, there's sort of a, a a back and forth, and it's always a Nobody ever crosses the finish line. It's just yeah. a continuous race. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was so, going to uh, ask, like, um, you know, how, how do you, from a lubricant's perspective, solve the micropitting issue? Like, what is it that you can change in the lubricant formulation that, that helps with that? Uh, well, from my experience, the, the first thing is, uh, is, is uh, going metal-free and finding... Uh, additives that are non-metallic, so nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, and uh, sulfur that can mitigate the, the micropitting failure. But the, the, there's also a, a, a secret sauce behind the secret sauce. So the secret sauce is the chemistry. So how do you evolve that chemistry? So the, the secret sauce there is having access to lots of testing. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the evolution of SHC XMP came about with uh, reliable, repeatable micropitting tests initially. So we actually had several, we had several of those rigs in Paulsboro in the mobile facility where we actually were able to run our own tests in-house in addition to hiring out uh, micropitting tests at the FCG Institute in Munich and a couple other places. So there's a lot of test data that went into sort of not just learning how to make things better, but learning what not to do. How do you turn on the failure mode in its most extreme case? So that's how the SHC XMP came about. If, if you asked me to skyhook a number, I would say, say 50 micropitting tests to get one product that works. Wow. That's a lot okay. of money and time. Yeah. But I then the desire to actually make that product better to force the evolution into mobile SAC gear 
320 WT. That was an additional 150 micropitting tests. Mm-hmm. We actually we actually had to do um, we had to develop a a rapid screening method using actual gears because you could do surface tribology testing where you're doing like pin on disc and you know uh, uh, little uh, bearing tests or you could do like uh, uh, reciprocating type of tests that you could do tribology testing on, but there's really no substitute for um, studying the micropitting failure using gear on gear interactions. And that was another thing that we did consistently in the mobile world was not look, not relying on benchtop tribology testing, but actually studying failure modes and the actual equipment. Right. So, so just to jump in there though, so when we talked earlier about the micropitting failure, we talked about it almost being like an energy transfer failure, mm. right? So you've got two gear teeth that are meshing together and the load is sufficient that there is, um, let's say, elastic deformation of the teeth as a whole, which is causing local uh, areas of very high stress at the tooth surface. And then you, we said there was kind of like a delamination that occurs um, at the tooth at the tooth surface, but primarily at the at the root of the tooth. Yep. So, thinking about it as an energy transfer problem, like so, you're fundamentally it's one tooth transferring energy to another tooth. Uh, how can presumably the way that you get around that is to somehow is it like distribute the energy transfer over a wider area of the tooth, or to somehow uh, I mean, you can't you can't reduce the load transfer, right? Because the gearbox has to transfer that load. So, so how is the, the thing that I'm tr- struggling with is how does the lubricant help reduce the micropitting failure? So, two ways. The first way is the choice of the correct additives to mitigate. So, so if you really slow time down and you look at how those two teeth sort of interact. So, mm. if I have the, the, the the pinion transferring load to the the wheel it's that moment of instantaneous contact of the tip of the of the power pusher yep. into the power receiver right as it dents into the root uh, of the receiver so it's all about and, and the rest of this is you know there's simultaneous sliding and denting going on at initial contact load pushes and then you get to this perfect point where it's just nothing but uh, rolling. rolling. There's no sliding. And then there's decoupling like this, right? So it's that moment of contact that goes down in there. So you first way is with additives uh, that inhibit uh, the kind of um, denting yep. phenomena, mitigating that denting phenomena as the, as, the, as the power transfer tooth meets the root of the receiver. But it's also, you know, when you talk about uh, one of the things that we discovered with uh, uh, mobile SAC gear 320 WT is the extreme modal blending. We actually were able to use the composition of the hydrocarbons to get this extremely high VI, high viscosity index. Uh, So it's essentially resistance to thinning. So at the moment of contact, the, the tiny little patch of lube, not the additives, but the hydrocarbon that's in there, 
experiences a tremendous pressure rise. So you actually, what we think is happening is that the pressure rise causes a uh, glass transition to go on with uh, that's just momentary and instantaneous. Uh, and if you actually form a lubricant glass in that moment, you can propagate dents, you can propagate scuffing, you can propagate all kinds of metal to metal contact with high temperature rises because you don't have a liquid there anymore. You've got uh, a glass like solid under high pressure. But with very high VI and extreme modal blending, we were able to show that 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 doesn't happen. So you actually have maintenance of liquid film here. And that actually is the what I think is the more clever way of solving the micropitting problem is having these these hydrocarbon mixtures that don't allow any type of solidification in a transient way. So that's interesting. I thought the glass, I, th- I thought the glass transition was a given, uh, and I, di- I didn't realize that there were ways of um, maybe uh, let's say formulating the base oil strategy such that uh, that that didn't occur. That's really uh, that's really interesting. So what um, you really want, you, you want to keep you want to keep the viscosity as low as possible, but you know by definition you're in the realm of an ISO three twenty, right? Yeah. So at these very high uh, pressures, you want to keep that viscosity as low as possible so that you're down below that that uh, solidification point. So that's interesting. So so that's when you talk about the viscosity index. That's not that's not showing up though in the VI necessarily, is it? Because that, let's say for example, if I look at the VI of uh, you know the wind turbine gear oils, they're not significantly different from from other products if you just looked at the viscosity index on the product data sheet right but the vi on the product data sheet is referring to a viscosity temperature relationship whereas what you're talking about is a viscosity pressure relationship exactly exactly but um, if you look at typical hydrocarbons say shc xmp or any of our competitors are you're looking at the combination of say a a low viscosity PAO and a, a PAO that's a higher viscosity grade, you can get up without VI improvers, you can get into a VI of about 160. As soon as you start using uh, uh, SuperSyn and Metallocene 150, uh, you can you control the molecular weight distribution of that high viscosity component so that it's extremely narrow. That's really also one of the little secret sauce secrets there. And you use very low viscosity, low viscosity hydrocarbons. It's 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 as if the low viscosity hydrocarbons are solubilizing each molecule of the high viscosity piece much better than if you had a very wide distribution, say, of uh, high viscosity PAO. So you can, if you look to see the difference between a 160 VI of the typical PAOs and say a 185. It, that that 25 point jump in VI, you're right, is not super significant in and of itself. But what it indicates is that you've got something that's a much more robust at resistant uh, resistance to thickening at mm. the higher pressure. So as a surrogate, you can look at low temperature performance as well. You know, I, I don't like to look at pore points. I'm, I'm all in for Brookfield viscosities because that's actually looking at a, a spindle inside of a, a lubricant piece and you're measuring torque on a, 
a mm. torque arm with Brookfield viscosity. You look at the Brookfields of of uh, extreme modal blends; they're way, 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 way better than the typical synthetics and and anything to do with mineral oils. Um, yeah. So that that indicator of of a VI threshold, if if I had to pick, you know, it, it's not. Um, it's not indicative in and of itself, but it is indicative of what's going on in the blend. So the, the, the more desirable, um, higher VI without VI improvers to make it stable in service, uh, would predict a much better control of glass transition temperature. Okay. Interesting. Does that, does that, does that help? Yeah, um, that does. That does. So you know, if we take then a step forward into, let's say, the next gen uh, gear oils, where we're starting to get into um, lubricants that are virtually designed, not necessarily for the life of the gearbox, because gearbox life is probably about 20 years now, but half the life of the gearbox. So we're, we're starting right. to see warranties, like 10 year warranties now uh, yeah. around wind turbine gear oils. And it seems oh, oh, to be. Oh, oh. Oil drain intervals, ODIs that are seven to ten years. That's that's sort yeah. of the big trend right now. Yeah. yeah, and so two two of the sort of big enablers that uh, have at least been advertised and marketed seem to be, uh, firstly, a a move toward like metallocene PAO formulations, as well as uh, sulfur free, as well. So mm. you know, before you were talking about going metal free. And that means that your additive package is largely, let's say, uh, uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur-based. Now we're also dropping the sulfur. Yeah. So um, what's the, maybe firstly, if we talk about the sulfur stuff, um, what's the philosophy behind that? So why do you, why do you want to take sulfur out of your formulation? Uh, yeah, it, it sort of goes along the continuum of, of pulling out the most delicate additives. So what... What are the most delicate additives? First is the VI improver, right? Yep. You don't want that. Um, second is the dispersant. You know, the the multiple nitrogens are designed to grab onto things and they're annihilative. They're not um, catalytic. Mm -hmm. As soon as they do one job, that molecule's out. You know, it's, it's off the field. This, detergents are the same way. You know, you have the metallic sulfonates. As soon as they give up their ability to neutralize something, they're done. So the, those are the necessary additives for high contamination environments, you know, very, very uh, highly polar contaminants, like in an engine oil. But they're designed, those lubricants are designed to be changed out significant, uh, very fast, yep. right? So sulfur, it, you know, with the um, zinc dioxyl dithio, phosphates okay. that was sort of the ligand that came along for the ride to both deliver the zinc oxide and attach in a transient way to a steel surface to form uh, anti-wear uh, layers uh, so the the other way to form anti-wear protection layers is to use nitrogen only or nitrogen phosphorus combinations which is what we prefer and then the, the, the sulfur that we've sort of used in the, in the evolution of lubricants into over the last 20 years 
is there really to address uh, um, cupric alloy uh, compatibilities. Yep. You know, copper alloys, they, they um, are protected and they react very, very rapidly with sulfur, but not with oxygen. Um, so the, the, there's a special additive uh, that was actually invented by uh, Amico in the, in the way back, back in the 40s and 50s, post-World War II, that, that still does a fantastic job of that. But there's other chemistry you can employ, too, that's nitrogen only. So mm. that when you talk about sulfur-free, you know, we're really dealing with sulfur that's in the virgin oil at about 100 to 120 parts per million sulfur. Now we want to keep that sulfur level below 30 parts per million. Okay. Um, there, there is some incidental sulfur that comes along for the ride in the manufacture of the, the, the base stocks and the other additives. You really can't get rid of all of it. So when you use the term sulfur free, you're really talking about 30 BPMs or less. Yeah. So kind of, kind about, of like uh, kind of like no added sugar in, in, your, yeah. in your cereal or whatever. There's no, there's no added sulfur in the formulation. So exactly. I, I, so I guess exactly. that, that's kind of analogous to uh, in the industrial gear drives, like, you know, you wouldn't use a, a standard EP style gear oil on a, uh, on a worm gear, right? When it, when, when the, when the worm wheel is made of brass or, or a bronze. You'll destroy it. Yeah. Yeah. You'll destroy it. So we, okay. And that, that's really what you want with a, with a bronze uh, gearing system or a heavily, if you have uh, a lot of heavily loaded uh, brass cages and roller element bearings, mm -hmm. you do not want to do old style EP. You know, to me, that's, uh, you know, that sulfurized olefins and uh, sulfur based uh, extreme pressure type of additives that, that, that in, in, in my uh, career sort of relegated to the era of the carbureted engine, you know, it's just that. Right. Uh, it's part of the eighties and, and before, but not now. Okay. Interesting. So then, then we've got, uh, you know, the, talking about the, the, the base oils as well. So, you know, quite a, as far as I can tell, a lot of the next gen products seem to be heavily, uh, MPAO based. Um, mm -hmm. now again, going back to our paradigm where we talked about everything being about polarity and charge and all that kind of stuff. So far as I can tell, the advantage of using MPAO is that it is so nonpolar. <laughs> like it, yeah. There's basically zero polarity to any of the molecules that are going to be in MPAO. And as a result, uh, it, it is going to be completely immiscible with water. And so therefore you get fantastic like demulsibility characteristics. Um, and then let's say for example, on foam formation, which can sometimes be a problem in uh, wind turbine gearboxes. Um, you know, you don't, with, with a lack of polarity, you don't get enough uh, surface tension to really form any kind of, any stable foam. Um, is, is a that good way to look at, on okay. the right track? Uh, I, you know, let's take, for example, the two bookends, you know, yep. metallocene PAO and, um conventional pao yeah they're both hydrocarbons uh say the high viscosity piece which is the important piece for an industrial gear oil they're both um impervious to a lot of contamination in them but what ends up happening two things um happen when you move from conventional pao to the metallocene process so 
when when you're synthesizing conventional PAL, you use what's uh, typically is used as a, is a Lewis acid. So it's a stoichiometric catalyst. So essentially what happens in a reactor, you take the, the decine, which is just a, a C10 hydrocarbon with an olefin on the background, backbone, on the end of the backbone, in the presence of, say, aluminum chloride. You heat it up and bam, everything happens very quickly. And you get this big mishmash of molecular weight distribution, right? So you have the the center of the Gaussian curve is, you know, essentially giving you that, say, 100 centistoke PAO, but you've got some very high molecular weight materials, and you got also some much lower molecular weight materials. Now, what happens with the metallocene PAO manufacturing? Um, that's a proprietary metallic catalyst, and that's in say instead of a one-to-one -one mixture when you're manufacturing there's 5,000 parts of the olefin to only one of the catalyst so the catalyst sits there and waits for a certain amount of temperature to come in and it's like a seamstress just gently putting together the quilt of comb-like molecules which is what PAO ends up being and depending on the time and the temperature you can stop and the seamstress says, okay, I'm done. You filter it out and you've got your metallocene PAO. And the consequence of that change of that chemistry mechanism is you, you have a much tighter molecular weight distribution. You don't have this big wide molecular weight distribution, which leads to foam problems, which leads to some of these water carrying problems that we've discovered over the years. So why, you know, why does a wide distribution lead to foam and water problems? Uh, that's, yeah. So that ends up being uh, an issue of surface tension. So when you have two hydrocarbons that for all intents and purposes behave the same uh, to the additive systems that you present them, but when you come to the contamination piece, which is air, you know, it's a different fluid that comes into the, the oil or water, which is another fluid that comes into the oil. They behave very differently. So you, an easy way to think about this is the, the higher molecular weight materials are your enemy in these kinds of situations, okay. because the higher molecular weight materials can drag against each other and form meringues or form um, uh, long drawn out uh, sticky molecules. If you've ever run a chainsaw and seen the, the tackifiers that are in uh, a bar oil, and you can see that those oils are designed to stick together and string out. There's a relatively low speed application where you want the guide bar and the chips coming off the wood uh, subject to sort of stick together. But in the case of lubrication, we've we found that the metallocene has a PAO has a tremendous advantage because nothing is, is sticking together in that second solution, in that second uh, phase, whether it's air or water. Does that help at all? So that the, 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 the lack of very high molecular weight um, componentry, uh, not componentry, uh, the population of molecules that's in this PAO is excluding this very high molecular weight, uh, sticky material. So yeah. higher molecular weight materials, uh, hydrocarbons tend to be sticky. Yeah, that, that, that makes a, a lot more sense.
Um, it does raise a question, I think, about sure. uh, some of the open gear lubricants, though, which mm. are all, because of their viscosity, presumably very high molecular weight. Yes. Uh, and, yeah, anyway, that's something that maybe I had never really thought about in terms of um, foaming and, and potential water contamination of those lubricants because they are... You yeah, tend not to worry... You tend not to worry about open gear lubricants yeah. uh, for, for foam and for a lot of water handling uh, problems, um, mostly because they the, those machines run so slow, right? So you actually have to, you're, you're, you have to sort of cast your mind to something that's sort of a semi-grease that's not a grease. So you really want these very high molecular weight materials to sort of stick and move on the, 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 the metallic surfaces in a very glacial sort of fashion. You don't, yeah. want, uh, you don't want liquid droplets falling off these things. You actually want, because if you think about the pinion, that's getting a lot of damage and a lot of power transfer. But a bull gear that's, you know, the, the receiver of the, the power from a, a very small pinion gear that, that actually has to have the lubricant sticking to its teeth for sometimes, you know, dozens and dozens of seconds or sometimes a minute or more. Yeah, before it comes, it comes back around. around. One, yeah, before it comes back around again. So yeah. you, can't, um, you can't really compare those two things. They're, they, they're both tooth-driven materials. They're both hydrocarbon uh, lubricated, but the the mechanical realm is so different that you have to sort of uh, tip your hat to the necessity of having something very different um, yeah. in, in its uh, surface uh, um, behavior. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, as we like sort of get to the end of these, I always like to ask some questions about the future of, of the industry. So I think there's probably been um, a lot of questions about what does the future of the wind turbine industry look like and therefore what's the impact on on the lubricants industry because there was it felt like a few years ago there was a lot of talk about the idea that the majority of wind turbines would go to um to direct drive versus versus geared that seems to um that's kind of seems to have been put to bed by these companies making bigger and bigger turbines um yeah and it just well, seems it, like to, to put that amount of power through a direct drive system kind of seems unreasonable. I mean, like that GE's, what is a Halide X? That, that thing is just gigantic. I'm now, it's, it's huge. Um, yeah, the, I just can't imagine that kind of power going through a direct drive system, but you, you would know better than me. Um, okay, two, two things limit you with the uh, direct drive systems. Uh, and again, this is me being out of the, the industry on a daily contact for, you know, a couple, three years now uh, since I retired. But um, you, you, the biggest issue with direct drive um, wind turbines is the, um, is the transition metal problem. Neodymium uh, is mostly found in, in China. There's a few deposits. I think there's one big deposit in Australia. There's one in South America, and there's 
there's one in Canada. So the U.S. doesn't have any nascent neodymium content. So they got to buy their their uh, ferromagnetic materials uh, for these permanent magnets or semi-permanent magnets elsewhere. Uh, so the supply of raw materials is what really limits, mm -hmm. I think, the construction, the wide construction of these things. Also, when you're dealing with you know, the, the flip side of that is when you think about a classical wind turbine that has the, the blades, the, the shaft, the, the gear uh, reducer, which runs backwards to actually increase uh, speed and velocity and the generator out back. Think about what the, what's going on there. Yeah, you have very high precision materials and uh, you've got some careful uh, attention to machining and, and, and control of backlash and precise machines. But if you've got a steel mill and you got a source of copper and you have a source of fiberglass, what's stopping you from building an industry in your country? You know, you don't need a lot of exotic materials mm -hmm. to build, uh, you know, the typical Danish design wind turbine, you know, uh, that has the, the, the typical powertrain. So it, it allows you to, to, to build them larger, lighter, you can think about how things go. The biggest one I had seen before I retired uh, almost about four years ago was was uh, Samsung had a nine megawatt machine uh, that I was uh, I was in Korea to see the commissioning of. And, and it's scary how big that was compared to what was the biggest thing 10 years before that, which was like yeah. four megawatts. So four megawatts, there's no way that they're, but these things, these things are so big, you, you, you they can only be used near shore or offshore. They can, you can't really use them on land, right? Yeah. So the, the, the thing that happens offshore too is, is the towers don't need to be as tall. Mm. They can be shorter and more robust. Right. The blades can be a different configuration. So they're not as as clunky. The wind offshore shore is much more consistent and uh, non variable the way it is on a mountaintop uh, on land. So I think what's what sort of happened there is that several factors, one of them economic and sort of geopolitical. I think 85 percent or so of the world's neodymium is controlled by the, the Chinese government. So it's, it's really tough to come up with, you know, there are only a few um, metals that you can use in, in, a, in a permanent magnet like that. Uh, neodymium is the easy one to use, mm -hmm. as I understand it. Um, and the fact that the, the, the classic design, if you will, the Danish design of the, the powertrain of the, the generator with a gearbox up tower, you know, people just keep sharpening their pencils. I mean, engineers are really smart people, you know. You know I'm, a, I'm just a doofus chemist, right? Engineers really know <laughs> what they're doing. With you. you know, making these things, you know, bigger and more powerful and more reliable. I mean, it's just a question of every, every step, every, every inch of the way. It's almost like the specialization in, in professional sports. You know, we were talking about that uh, at a different time. You know, you, you look at all these different people that play these different positions in sports and it happens with machinery. It, 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 it's real time intellectual evolution. And you can actually see these things sort of moving in a certain direction away from other, other directions. So yeah. that, I, I, I still, I don't see permanent magnets um, as a sustainable solution, at least the way things are, are, uh, are right.
right now. The other problem I heard before um, too much time went by was that because the, the weight of these direct drive uh, gearboxes or, or generators, if you will, gets really, really high, really fast as you start to grow them, you know, beyond say seven or eight megawatts. So it's not as amendable to scaling and it's not as, it's not as easy to, uh, to, uh, to build because you put so much financial resources into each individual machine. Mm. So I, you know, I, I see the, the, the classical design, the Danish design as being sort of the one that will promulgate into the future. I don't see that the, there, there's going to be a, a need and a presence for direct drives, no doubt about it. Uh, but I don't see that as being the dominant uh, winner over a long time. Interesting. Hey, well, Jim, like, thanks so much for, for talking. And I got a lot out of that discussion. So, and, and hopefully the audience will too. So, I yeah, really I hope it helps. That. Yeah, yeah, and you know, we hopefully we'll continue the dialogue about other things. It's, it's.